Bibles, please, if you will, or on your phones to Acts chapter 23, where we are studying God's Word. We're going to finish up this chapter this week, Acts chapter 23. Jonathan uh, took us through the first two sections of this chapter of the last two weeks, uh, the two weeks. So uh, today, our text is the last, uh, the last verses, verses 23 through 35. But instead of looking just at those verses, we're actually going to back up a little bit and, and look at the entire chapter, look at some of the themes we see spread across this entire chapter, chapter 23. So that means we'll start at verse 1. So you can turn to verse 1, chapter 23, page 932, if you're using the Bibles here under the seats in front of you. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Before we read, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, Father, thank you for gathering us today. Thank you for calling us to listen to your voice. We pray that you would come and work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, show us your truth. Press it into our lives. May we worship you today and trust you, thanking you for our Savior and looking to him for courage. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 23. Now, just to review, for those who may not remember, Paul has just come to Jerusalem. Well, he came to Jerusalem. He had been on three different missionary journeys, and then he comes back to Jerusalem. He really wanted to go to Rome, but he has a gift from the Gentile churches for the church there in Jerusalem. So he comes back. He meets with James uh, in chapter 21. He uh, is he submits to the Jewish Christian's desire that he celebrate some of these Jewish traditions, uh, and then he uh, ends up getting arrested in the temple because of these Jews from Asia who start a riot. They try to kill him, but he's saved by the tribune, uh, one of many times that this Roman tribune will save him. And um, he's given a chance to speak to the people by the tribune. He shares his testimony with them in chapter 22. Uh, but they uh, are angry once more by the end of it, and so he's taken back into the barracks. The tribune is about to interrogate him very roughly when he shares that he is a Roman citizen, and so he is uh, not interrogated, and, but the, the centurion, he's still curious, and so he takes him to the Jewish council, and uh, to, to see if he can figure out what they're so upset about. And so that's where we pick up here at the beginning of chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called, Two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, the governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And reading the letter, 
He asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Well, I recently read a novel by Richard Adams called Watership Down. This story is about a bunch of rabbits who uh, they're searching for a new home because their old home has been destroyed. And, of course, rabbits traveling cross-country face a lot of dangers. And, uh, in fact, they can, they can sometimes get so frightened that they kind of get immobile. They get sort of a glazed look, and they just sit there watching their enemies approach to eat them. The rabbits in the book refer to this as going farn. They have their own language. And so whenever things get really desperate, the, the chief rabbit, he will actually try to keep everyone's courage up so they don't go farn by having one of the rabbits tell stories. All their stories are about a great rabbit hero named Elahrera, who was a great trickster. He's always stealing somebody's carrots or somebody's cabbages. Well, there's a sense in which these stories about the Apostle Paul in the last section here of the book of Acts, they have similarly encouraged generations of Christians. They're, they're true stories. They're not rabbit stories. But they showed the early Christians what Christian courage looks like. And I think this chapter in particular shows us where courage comes from because it reveals some important truths about God. And you see, it's, it's knowing God as he truly reveals himself to be that can take away your fear and give you courage. So first, we'll look at courage from God's call. That'll be my first point, courage from God's call. Maybe you're not so interested in books about rabbits, but you've seen the film The Matrix. Uh, it's a bit violent, so I don't know if I can recommend it, but one of the main characters is told by an oracle that the man she loves will be the one. Uh, this hero who's going to save the human race. So when the man she loves appears to die, she knows it cannot be true because he hasn't done his job yet, at least until he saves the human race. He's got to be immortal. Well, Paul receives a similar promise here in verse 11. Jesus comes and tells him he will be his witness in Rome. We looked at this two weeks ago. And as a result, Paul is told what? Take courage. Take courage. Now, this uh, promise is specific to Paul, obviously, and probably none of us has received such a specific and authoritative direction on God's call for our lives. And yet the principle that no child of God dies a premature death, that remains true for us. We do not leave this world until we have accomplished the purpose for which God made us. His calling gives us courage. And I think it's helpful to ask then, what, what do we know? What do we know about God's call for every 
believer. We might not know the specifics, right? Like Paul has given very specific, very specific call here. But what things do we know for certain? If you're a child of God, you're not just a random addition to his plan. Sort of like, yeah, she can come along too. Maybe we'll figure out something for her to do at some point. No, he has a goal for you, a purpose. And it's an important question to ask. What, what is that goal? What does his word reveal about his call for every Christian? What does God say to you? What are his plans for your life? Well, he says, you are mine. You are mine. I will put my name on you. I will write it on your hands, on your heart, on your head. How do we baptize someone who's joining the visible church of God? We say it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Every Christian has had God's name given to him, placed upon him. And whenever you receive the benediction at the end of our worship service, the name of the Lord is being placed upon you. In the Old Testament, God commanded his priests to bless the people. And he said in his name, and he said in Numbers 6, 27, so shall they put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. The, the life of a Christian is having the name of God engraved deeper and deeper into us until all that is left when our redemption is complete is the holiness of the Lord. Glory. This is, this is a calling to fill you with courage. You are not trash, Christian. You are not a random collection of cells floating through existence. You're not useless or meaningless. And you are not garbage. No matter what someone once sneered at you or the devil whispers to you. I remember telling the Lord, crying out to him, you do not want me, Lord. I am a traitor. I make you look ridiculous. You look like a fool for loving me. And he told me again and again and again, you are mine. It's a declaration. It's not a suggestion. It's not a bargain. It's not a possible direction. Isaiah 43, verse 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Christian, listen to this proclamation because it's where your courage begins. The first and most important part of your calling is this label written upon you. This child belongs to the Lord. That's your calling. Even if you can't figure anything else out more specific, that is already a wonderful call. So courage from God's call. But I think we can also grow in Christian courage by seeing in this text God's power to change people. So let's turn to my second point. Courage from God's power to change. Uh, last week... We saw the wickedness of these plot hatchers in verses 12 to 22. And the, the deceitfulness of their hearts is really terrible to see, especially when you remember that these 
are the people above all other people in the world who should value justice. They are the caretakers of the holy law of the one true God. Again and again, the prophets warned them throughout the centuries, do justice, do mercy. It's being made so clear to us, isn't it? These people have hearts of stone. That's why the Lord is taking Paul away from them, sending him to Rome. Notice how Luke, uh, the writer of Acts here, he draws out this contrast between the Jews, who should above all be just, but are seeking to murder Paul, and the, the pagan foreign Romans who keep saving him and, and who, who generally promote justice. I mean, the Romans are willing to listen to him. Uh, in the beginning of this text, Paul's own people refuse to let him speak, right? Verse 2, Paul tries to speak. The chief priest has somebody hit him in the mouth. We saw that two weeks ago. But then the end of our text, verse 35, the corrupt Roman governor, Felix, we'll learn more about him perhaps next week, says to Paul, I will give you a hearing. I'll let you talk. And yet before we leave behind these people with hearts of stone, I think we need to remember again that Paul was once exactly like them. He was once exactly like these murderers. We need to see this because we, we already know how horrible sin is, how it makes people mad at the gospel, how it turns these Jews into murderers who are willing to call down curses upon themselves rather than believe. Sin is wickedly powerful, but we need to see that grace is powerful too. I often listen to and am encouraged by the sermons of a fellow OP minister named Stephen Tracy, who says about this text, Christians need a biblical theology of change. That change is possible. That it happens, and it happens by the grace of Jesus. I know that Christians can struggle sometimes to believe that God can change people. We know people in our lives who it seems like it would be impossible for them to change, or we recognize sins in our lives and we despair. Could we ever change? And we make these stories more authoritative than God's word of good news to us, that he can break the power of sin. He can change hearts of stone. What is it that changed Paul? He was chasing the Christians all the way to Damascus, seeking after them to bring them back, to imprison them, to kill them. He, he didn't just finally grow up. Uh, his friends didn't, you know, schedule an intervention with him. He didn't look inside and find something there that was, he didn't know before. He didn't find some brilliant therapist. He met Jesus, and he recognized him as Lord. This is what I love about reading through the Gospels, or you know our sermon series three years ago on the book of Mark, because you meet this man named Jesus, and it becomes clearer 
and clearer as you get to know him that this man is not just a man. He is God with the power to change people. I remember that conclusion just becoming clearer and starker as I studied Mark to preach it to you guys. And of course, Christ's lordship comes to a culmination in his resurrection and his ascension because his resurrection means you can know him too. He's alive. And his ascension means his human body is not here now. It is in heaven, except insofar as we are his body, his hands and his feet through which his grace flows. It is a living relationship with a living Lord that is the foundation for any change because it is from Him that the power of grace flows. Uh, abiding in the vine, right? That's how He describes our need to be in a living relationship with Him. When the sap of life comes and flows to us that can turn our dark thoughts and habits towards the light. Some of these other things we look to for help changing, they're not bad. They can help, but they are not the source. And really, friends, I think you need to ask the question. If you don't believe that God can change people, what is the point of praying? And do you really believe the gospel? And if you deny the gospel... All you're left with are your fruitless doubts. But if you believe that God's grace has power to change, like it happened for Paul, like it changed him, truly, then you ought to take courage. Take courage to pray and to speak the gospel to yourselves and those around you. But finally, we turn to our third point, because I think... Christian courage comes also from seeing God's control, which is all over this text. So my third point, courage from God's control. In this chapter, as we read through it, Paul looks like a little pawn torn between different multiple powerful forces that are all around him. But of course, we need to see that the Lord is slowly taking him exactly where he promised to Rome. There's sort of three episodes in this chapter. In the first episode, Paul is torn between these two political religious parties, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, to the point where in verse 10, Roman commander sends his soldiers in to rescue Paul so he doesn't get torn apart. And it, it looks like Paul is just this little cork. So just tossed around in a great ocean. But what is happening? God is taking him away from the Jews. In fact, this is the last time he will speak to the Jews of Jerusalem. And then in the second episode, these 40 zealots, they take an oath to kill Paul. They plot along with the Jewish council to, bring, uh, to, to manipulate the Romans into bringing Paul back so they can destroy him along the way. Again, it would seem like these worldly powers would do away with Paul, but here God uses a young man, perhaps even just a boy. I think we see his youth actually uh, brought out here in verse 19 where the tribune takes him by the hand. That's not the kind of thing you do with a man. 
Uh, and the fact that he's Paul's nephew, it also sort of reminds us, I think, of Paul's vulnerability, his humanity. We're used to viewing Paul as sort of a superhuman uh, guy with his many escapes, his bold words, but here he's a normal human being. With, he's got relatives. In fact, he's actually the older generation. Uh, you can imagine Paul sort of being like, uh, Joey, what are you doing here? I, I thought you were still in diapers. Come over here. Let me see how tall you are. He, he, Paul is getting old, right? He has this nephew saving him. And yet again, the Lord's control is seen as he saves Paul. Uh, but notice that now in verse 18, Paul is called the prisoner. Now, this is a title that Paul will embrace, but it, it's a title of weakness, right? All these people are moving around him, but he will remain a prisoner for the rest of the book of Acts. This would be a terrifying place to be, perhaps. Maybe, maybe some of you feel like a prisoner of your responsibilities, your family, your work. If God is in control, as he is for Paul, that is not a hopeless place to be. You will not see Paul acting hopeless in the next couple chapters. You'll see him actually offering hope again and again. We turn to the third episode here in verse 23. We see Paul leave Jerusalem. He's never going to come back that we know of. But he leaves at the head of an army. 470 soldiers, we're told, if we do the addition there, are sent to protect him. This Roman commander, Lysias, he would have had a maximum of about 1,000 soldiers at his command to keep the peace in Jerusalem. Some sources think that actually at this time he only had about 600. But, but whatever the number, Paul is being well taken care of. It's at least about half of his soldiers he sends to protect Paul, if not much more. Uriah, you want to pull up my map here real briefly. I'll just give you guys the map. So you can see there the journey that they took it's about uh, 35 miles from Jerusalem here up to Antipatris along the coast. 35 miles through the night. They leave around 9 p.m. And they get there by the morning. And that's about halfway up to Caesarea. I think it's about 62 miles uh, to get there. But they get there the next morning. That would be a hefty hike, 35 miles through the night for these infantry. And yet it also puts Paul out of reach, doesn't it, from these 40 uh, murderers. Um, so the foot soldiers head home, and Paul continues on. In, in Caesarea, the Roman governor offers Paul a fair trial. We saw that earlier. And you can almost uh, hear the Lord chuckling a bit that Paul's accusers, who punched him in the mouth earlier and wouldn't let him talk, they're now going to be forced to walk those 62 miles and come and listen to him because he's going to get a fair trial. Uriah, uh, you can take down my map. This is the hand of the Lord at work that we see throughout this text. Saving Paul from danger. Removing him from those who refuse to listen. And sending him to those who will. Notice, uh, even in, in the letter of Claudius Lysias, uh, he does switch a few things around for his benefit. He leaves a few things out. But he also sticks up for Paul. Verse 29, this guy is charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. 
Lysias just adds that. He's not a judge. He doesn't have to add that. It sort of seems like he, he cares about Paul. Paul is a cork bobbing in an ocean, but the invisible hands of the Lord are there all along. This can give you great courage or be absolutely terrifying. It all depends on whether you are willing to be the clay in the hands of the potter or not. Will you accept that the Lord is molding you and shaping you into the exact shape that is for your good and his glory? Or will you be a silly lump of clay shouting up at his creator from the potter's wheel that you should be able to decide who you are, what your purpose is? Courage comes when you stop trying to be like God. You stop listening to the lies of the serpent who told Adam and Eve they could be like God and has repeated that same lie to all their descendants. You cannot be like God. You are the clay. Stop listening to him and bow before the true and only king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is good and he understands I know, sometimes you want to just cry out to him. You just don't understand. But you can't because he does. He does. He came down. He took on flesh. He saw the things that discourage you. They touched his heart too with their cold fingers. He talked with those hard hearts of people that don't seem like they could ever change. He wept as he struggled to accept the Lord's will for his life. He bobbed like a cork on the grinding waves of the world's politics and armies. But guess what? He won. He won. Jesus won. And he did not win the way the world wins battles with casualties and, and burned out buildings. He won by the supreme act of atoning self-sacrifice. And then he rose in victory because it was impossible for the grave to contain the power of his incorruptible life. And now, Christian, he calls you mine. He has the power to change you. And he is in control. So do not lose heart. But take courage. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which reminds us of the reasons why we should take courage. Lord, even as we see the example of Paul, who has courage in a difficult situation, we also can know the God who gives us courage. We can know you through our Savior, Jesus, the one who calls us by name, who places the name of the Lord upon us, and who is at work to make us holy, the one who can change us, Lord, who has the power to do it, 
and the one who is in control, Father. We praise you for these promises, these precious promises. And we do pray, Lord, that as we go out into this world that is a difficult world to live in, that you would give us courage. And we thank you for the Savior who went before us so that we do not have to worry about being alone, for he understands and he watches over us and he will be with us at the end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.